Thanks, Scott. Uh, very excited to be with you. Um, come on behalf of my wife and kids. I've been married to my wife, Beth, for 21 years. We've got six kids, all under nine. So uh, my life, my uh, house is a little crazy right now. They're all bees. i got Brooks, a nine-year-old. Bo's a six-year-old. Beck's a six-year-old. Boss is a five-year-old. Blair's my two-year-old. And Bane's my one-year-old. And so um, all incredible stories, evidences of God's grace. But we have a great time living out the gospel there in Memphis. And as Scott said, pastoring a church there. And also have the joy of getting to do some leadership development and church planter coaching. And uh, uh, get to work with the group's uh, fellowship associates that Scott and I both graduated from. And so it's just been a joy to see like uh, the layers dreams and visions become a reality, and you guys um, doing what you're doing here at Southbridge is a, a great joy and a, a, an encouragement, a challenge, uh, and I love to see what God's doing through you guys and in you guys uh, here as a church. Um, I want us, if you've got a Bible, to go to Colossians. I'm going to talk a little bit about Paul's life, a little bit about the Apostle Paul, a little bit about um, this letter that he wrote to this church plant. Um, uh, that's what most of your New Testament is, is Paul writing letters to young church planters, young church plants like ourselves, um, and giving us instruction and giving us great reminders. Uh, Paul wrote about two-thirds of your New Testament. Uh, it also gives us in his writings kind of his biography, his story, and so I think his story can press into our story. Uh, he really lived two lives. Uh, first part of his life, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, was really lived for himself, really lived for his own glory, and then God did a miraculous redemptive work in Paul's life. And then the second part of Paul's life, he spent as an apostle of Jesus. He went from murdering church members and harassing Christians to uh, building up church members and planting churches, all because the hound of heaven, Jesus Christ, interceded in his life, knocked him off a donkey, blinded him, and reoriented his life to making much of Jesus after spending the first part of his life making much of himself. And so I want us to press those realities, those lessons into our life. I want us to think about our life? Are we kind of a first Paul, first life kind of person? Or are we kind of a second life, redeemed life, Jesus difference life kind of person that Paul will write about and talk about as he presses through this? Well, we're in Colossians, and since we're just kind of airlifting into Colossians, uh, we need to get the context right. Good Bible students and teachers always look at context. Uh, this is a letter written to this church, uh, uh, to the Colossians. It's a church Paul didn't actually plan himself. Um, Paul is uh, in prison uh, writing um, to this church and uh, that was planted by a guy that he had uh, um, uh, discipled, Epaphras, and uh, he... Um, had uh, sent him to plant this church, and so it was a new young church with a new young church planter. Paul was deeply concerned about where this church was, and specifically we can figure out from chapter 1, uh, there were false teachers that would uh, kind of commandeer these new outposts of the faith and often kind and come in and speak against Jesus and the teachings of Paul or almost more dangerously come in with a, a way to grow spiritually, a path of spiritual growth that included adding some things, maybe merging some philosophies and doctrines uh, into Christianity to create something totally different, which is we know it's syncretism, and so that's why you see so Paul so adamant often in the very first chapter of each of these letters to each of these churches to uh, stand firm in the faith, hold on to the doctrine of grace, hold on to the person and the work of Jesus. Like, don't add to the person and the work of Jesus. Um, and so he's defending that, and we know that's kind of what's going on in here in this first chapter. <laughs> If you just glance above it, you'll see Paul's writing, as he always does, encouraging them, uh, saying he's thankful to God for them. On down it says he's praying for them. 
um, as he's heard in verse 9, you can kind of glance at this with me, that um, he's asking that uh, they'll be filled with wisdom and understanding and in a manner worthy of the Lord be, to be strengthened with God's glorious might for all endurance and patience. And so a lot of these uh, character traits he's praying for them. And then he bursts into this incredible paragraph on uh, the preeminence of Christ. And so he kind of gives us, when we look at the whole of the New Testament, one of the purest, most beautiful, most exalted uh, paragraphs of Christology, of the person and the doctrine and the work of Jesus. And so these will probably be familiar to some of y'all. He's the image in verse 15 of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, invisible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the head of the body. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything, and here's the punchline, he might be preeminent. And that's the big word there, that Christ would be preeminent. Now, in our paragraph, we get the most personal piece of this letter that Paul's going to give us, and we're going to walk through it in just a second. Uh, Paul talks to the church, Paul talks to uh, the church planter in this, and then he gets real personal. Uh, Here, he really points to the personal work of Christ and uses that word preeminent. Now, this is also a personal text for me because 21 years ago, an old Texas pastor preached a wedding uh, to my wife and I, and he used Colossians 1, and he focused on uh, the preeminency of Christ and lifted up Jesus and shared the gospel at our wedding. And then he applied it to us and said, John Bryson, you're about to marry, well, I think it's grooms on this side, right? John Bryson, you're going to marry Beth Holt, and Beth does not merely want to be prominent in your life, right? Beth doesn't want you saying, sweetheart, of all the girls I love, I love you the most, right? That's prominence. You don't want to be prominent in your heart. On this day, you're coveting together, you're pledging together that she will be preeminent in your life for the rest of your life. Not merely prominent, she'll be preeminent. Preeminent means she's one with no competitors. She's preeminent. She's the preeminent woman in my life. Now, Paul's saying that about this church, that it's Jesus with no competitors. There's no other philosophical system. There's no other way. You don't need to add some other spiritual growth path beyond Jesus. Uh, He he is the preeminent one that we proclaim and the preeminent one uh, that we make much of in our church. And so he says all these things, and then amazingly he says, uh, now you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That describes all of us before Christ. We've now been reconciled, so this incredible preeminent Christ, the Son of the living God who is before all things and in Him all things hold together, takes the initiative to reconcile us to God the Father, which is the scandal of the gospel. I mean, that's amazing. We were alienated, we've now been uh, reconciled, not just reconciled, but reconciled and presented blameless and holy and above reproach, which is amazing. And so what, what Paul is saying there is Jesus didn't just save us, Jesus is our righteousness, that, that Jesus covers us. We're presented blameless and holy and pure before a perfect holy God uh, because of Jesus. And so when, when God looks down to the earth, he doesn't see good people and bad people. He sees bad people in Jesus. That we're found in him. That he presents us. We're presented perfect to God, not based on our own effort, but based on the finished effort of Jesus on that cross in our place for our sin. Amen? And so it's, that's why we worship him. That's why we're grateful for him. That's why we're thankful for him. Because he does the work to reconcile us and present us before God blameless and holy. And then he turns personal. And this is where we'll spend our time. He says, now, I, 
rejoice in my sufferings. And that's significant. Um, uh, again, Paul's describing this new life where he is uh, in suffering. We know him to be imprisoned. And so there, in and of itself, you see some of his others-centeredness. I don't know about you, but if I'm in jail, I want you guys writing me letters like Paul in the midst of some of the roughest, worst circumstances of his life. He's cold. He's hungry. Uh, he doesn't have creature comforts. He is uh, abandoned, and yet he's sharing his faith with the Praetorian Guard. We know that. And he is uh, writing letters to encourage the body. He is thinking about them. Something's revolutionized his heart from a me-centered approach to life to a them-centered and a us-centered and, and who are they and who are you. And I want to bless you and, and say kind words to you and encourage you. And so he is rejoicing in his sufferings for your sake. There it is. And in my flesh. And he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. Now that's a cumbersome phrase. And if you're a Bible student, that might stump you up because it seems to imply that um, somehow Christ's afflictions were lacking and Paul had to add to Christ's afflictions to make them sufficient. And we know that scriptures interpret scriptures and that that can't be true because Jesus's life and death and sufferings were all sufficient. <clears throat> the sufficiency of Christ is one of the pillars on which we stand. But what I think this means is Paul is saying, I am preaching the same message of Jesus that got him killed. I'm preaching the same message of the gospel and grace that got him murdered. And in doing so, I am taking on the afflictions Christ would be taking on had he not been murdered. So said another way, Paul could take on the lowercase a afflictions uh, and the lowercase s sufferings because Jesus took the capital A afflictions and the capital S sufferings on the cross when he was murdered and died. And so uh, he's being filled up in that and suffering for the name and sake and cause of Christ for the sake of the body that is the church. So that's how he starts this paragraph. And then he continues his personal pronouns here. And you'll see how many times he says, I, I rejoice, my flesh, I am filled up. And then he says, of which I became a minister. Now, there's going to be two primary identities Paul lets us in on here, and I don't want you to check out if you're not, quote-unquote, a minister. I would argue if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a minister. Uh, we're all called into ministry, but Paul's not talking about vocational ministry here. In fact, there were periods of Paul's life where uh, he didn't do vocational ministry. There were periods of Paul's life where he, uh, literally the term tent maker, he would make tents and not take a paycheck from a church. And there were other periods of Paul's life the church could afford to pay him. He gladly took that paycheck and defended uh, the, the payment for his ministry. But the word he uses here has nothing to do with vocational ministry. The word he uses here is diakonos. And so we're going to walk through and see how Paul personally lived this out and then circle back around and apply this to our lives. Paul says, I became a minister, a diakonos. So for this mission of Jesus, for, this, for the name of Christ, for the declaration of Christ's name, for the proclamation of the gospel, for evangelism going forth and church planting going forth, I suffered and I was a servant to that cause. And the word diakonos means servant. It was literally used for a waiter in Paul's day. Now, not waiters, you might have just thought about waiter. In fact, if you go to a fast food restaurant, like you don't have a waiter, right? You go through line, you seat yourself, even throw your own tray away. Keep, don't try not to throw the tray away, throw your trash away, put your tray up there. Um, you know, that's kind of how fast food works. And then if you go to a little nicer restaurant, uh, you may have a waitress or a waiter, you know, come to your table, take your order, tell you about the specials, um, bring your food to you. When you're done, they're like super extra nice right as you're writing the tip, you know, and so uh, that's kind of how that restaurant works. And then 
if you went to go to a little bit nicer of the nicest restaurants, uh, some of them will do this. You'll have a host, then you'll have a waiter, um, tell you about the specials, take your order, and then someone else kind of comes from the side, puts your food in front of you, and then takes off. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, what just happened? Like, who was that? Um, and then you eat your food, and then often some other set of hands will come grab your stuff, take off. Then your waiter or waitress comes back, uh, super nice to you as you write the tip, and that's how that goes down. Well, the word diakonos was literally that waiter who simply comes and takes food and delivers food and, and, and brings back the plates, and it's that kind of level of a servant. That this, it's not about me, I'm not even introducing my name, like, it's not who I am. Like, I see myself as a deliverer, a servant of these meals to, to God's people. And so uh, that's the challenge, that's one of the things that marks from an identity level Paul's new life. And he also says, though, according to the stewardship from God. So I'm not just a diakonos, I'm not just a servant, not just a minister, I'm a steward. That, you know, a steward stands between... Uh, a person of wealth, a family of wealth, a family of means, a, a person with things, and those folks who need things, who need to be fed, need to be blessed. And so a steward would manage the family of wealth's stuff in such a way that those who needed and had needs and those the family wanted to bless, wanted to serve, could experience the person, a family of wealth stuff. And so you, you were a steward. You weren't an end in and of yourself. You didn't just take from this family of means. You, you would manage something for the sake of the owner and for the blessing of other people. And so Paul says, that's my posture now in this new gospel cause, in the rest of my life, in my new life in Christ. Like I am a servant to all and I'm a steward. I'm, I'm not the end. All right? This isn't about making me awesome and showing off my awesomeness and making much of me and making me big. This is about serving and stewarding. The, it's not my stuff. It's not my message. It's not my gospel. It's not my good news. It's his good news that I want to steward for the sake of those who desperately need to hear the good news of the gospel and those who need to be strengthened in the gospel. And so Paul said, I was a minister and I was a steward. Now, this is specific to him, kind of his stewardship, as I'll argue in just a second. We all have a unique stewardship. Uh, says, it was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And so Paul, in the stewardship of his life, was stewarding the teaching and the preaching of the word, uh, these letters to the churches, these documents that, uh, that set theology, that protected the gospel. That was part of his stewardship. And then he uses this phrase, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. And so this has to do with the church, that the church age is a mystery. If you or I had lived in Jesus' day or before, uh, and we were trusting God, trusting for a Redeemer who was to come to take away the sins of the world, we would have been trusting for this, literally back from Genesis 3, a, a singular Hebrew male who would be harmed, but he would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. He would come to be the Messiah, be the Redeemer, take away the sins of the world, and set up shop in Jerusalem to be the perfect prophet, priest, and king, and to rule and to reign forever in a kingdom where there are no more tears, no more crying, no more war, lions lay down with lambs, all that stuff. And so uh, that's what they were hoping for. And as the disciples kind of joined this Jesus march, that's what they were expecting, that part of this was going to be a political revolution that would end with Jesus on a throne reigning and ruling. And then partway through each of those biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus begins to describe this second coming, that he's going to have to go away. And that was brand new, it was a new mystery 
that created this mystery, that Jesus wasn't just coming, that Jesus was coming again, that he would go away, and there would be what most theologians call this parenthesis that we're still living in, which is amazing, where Jews and Gentiles would come together to be this new thing called the church, and as a local church and as a uh, capital C church altogether, lowercase c church, our expressions of that, we would uh, to, to express the kingdom to our cities, to preach the gospel, make disciples, that we were to, to live out that great commission that God gave for us until Jesus comes again. And so the first time Jesus comes, he comes as a suffering servant. And the next time Jesus comes, it's a different posture. It's like Revelation 19. Uh, my two six-year-old boys love that story. It's Jesus on a white horse with like a uh, sword in his mouth, and it says he's tatted up on his legs, and he's coming to deal with Satan, sin, and death once and for all, and evil once and for all, and so, and then to establish his reign and his rule. But between those times is this church age, which Paul calls it the mystery. We had no idea that the church was coming, and so uh, uh, it doesn't go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Revelation. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four biographies of Jesus. The gospel is heralded, and then immediately you get the Holy Spirit coming, and you get the book of Acts, where evangelism now comes, discipleship, and church planting. Uh, and we're to be about that. As disciples make disciples, make much of Jesus, declare the gospel. Uh, men, women raised up to plant churches and love cities and love people until Jesus returns uh, to rule and reign forever. And so that's the mystery that Paul's called to steward his knowledge of the gospel, the preeminency of Christ uh, to this church age, he was called to steward his life to the, those fully known, this mystery that had been hidden for generations, now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And so Paul is saying this message is glorious and it's full of riches. And again, back to our context, he is battling a false teaching that is saying that you've got to step aside from the gospel or you've got to find something to add to the gospel in order to fully experience uh, uh, Christianity, fully experience a full spiritual life. And Paul is saying no. But that gospel, we talk about it as the vertical realities of the gospel and the horizontal demands of the gospel, uh, is, is how we come to Christ and it's how we're continually saved. It's how we're uh, continually grow. That uh, as one pastor said, Tim Keller in New York City, the gospel is in just the ABCs, it's the A to Z. So the gospel is that which, that which saves us and that which continues to save us, that which continues to sustain us. It, it fuels our justification before God and it fuels our sanctification. And so Paul's arguing for for a gospel-centered sanctification, that there are ver vertical demands of the fact that Jesus lived a life that you and I could never live. Uh, he died a death that you and I deserve. He then defeated Satan, sin, and death by rising from the grave, and he offers to us salvation. Like, and in that, there are amazing vertical realities, like a lot of those fancy theological terms that need to be known uh, because they're so encouraging and it's amazing the fact that we've been, there's been a propitiation for us that we've been redeemed that we've been adopted let's talk about that how beautiful that is adopted into the family of God that we've been um, you know saved redeemed uh, propitiated for adopted we could go on and on and on and on by, by what the finished work of Jesus does and what it offers to us like we could preach a 
40-year series just on the realities of the gospel and all that happened at salvation and, and to be mesmerized by all that Jesus made right based on his effort and his morality, not ours, uh, that he made us right before God. But then there's these horizontal demands, like that then shapes how we live. And so a lot of our Christian life is, could be said this way, the gospel working itself into every nook and cranny of our life. So what then does the gospel demand of my life when it comes to my thoughts on time and singleness? And how does the gospel shape my view of marriage as a spouse, as a parent, my view of money, my view of the city, my view of my nation, my view of the world? How does the gospel shape my view of time? How does it shape my view of hobbies? How does it shape my view of friendships? Like it is relentless. Like it is going to pray. It can't be compartmentalized to Sunday morning and 30 minutes every Tuesday or every Wednesday or every day for your devotional life. Like it is relentlessly uh, revolutionizing. If it's at work in your life, at work in your heart, it is doing that work to change what you think about race, what you think about justice, what you think about the city. It's doing its work in us and through us because of the finished work of Jesus. And that's the glory. That's the depth. That's why Paul said this thing is rich. Like, it is so rich, you don't add things to it. You don't need another stream. Like, it is rich that Christ should get bigger and uh, the demands on our life should be more as we trust Him and walk with Him. And so he says, it's Him we proclaim. And I love that. It's, it's a person we make much of. Like, the, 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 the message of the gospel is a person and it's the, the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ. It's His finished work. That's what we're pointing to. That's why uh, you know, Paul and later Martin Luther would talk about kind of the great exchange, that I exchange my sin for his salvation, that I, we stand before him. And so what we proclaim, what we want to make much of is not a religious system. It's not a moralistic system. It's not a legalistic system of don't do this anymore and start doing this now. It's a, ultimately, it's a person that we make much of Jesus. So it's him we proclaim. That's he's the end to everything we do. He's the end to any spiritual disciplines we practice. He's the end of our worship. He's the end of our effort and our labor. It's to make Jesus big, to make Jesus impossible to ignore in Raleigh, to make Jesus impossible to ignore. And he launched this movement way back in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Boom, Acts 2, it's launched. And we know from Revelation that it will march through every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group among the nations. That's why we care about the nations, what God's doing globally. Because we know this ends in a very diverse heaven where every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group are worshiping God together, eating great meals with great meat and great food and great drink. And if you read Revelation, it's a massive party and it's massive worship from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. We tell people a lot of time, if you don't like diverse church, you're going to hate heaven. Because it is massively diverse. Young, old, every tongue, tribe, nation, people group. And so it's him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Again, not mature necessarily in religious duties. Not, there's a place for those. Not mature in religious effort. There's a place for that. But that has to be fueled by a maturity in Christ. That from a gospel-saturated, gospel-bathed, gospel-dominated heart, I now serve and love and extend effort toward all the opportunities God gives me. So I'm, I'm living and laboring from approval, not for approval. I live and I labor from a scandalous approval, not for approval. So you can be doing the same things with a completely different heart. 
And what Paul's begging for is that everyone would be mature in Christ, that the gospel would be centered to our hearts. And then as we serve, as we labor, as we do life, that we do that from approval, not for approval, because we've been infinitely approved in the only eyes that matter, God's through the only work he accepts, Jesus. So the extent to which we're in Jesus, we stand before God blameless and holy. That's exactly what he wrote earlier. And he says, for this I toil. Now this wasn't originally written in English, and so this is a Greek word. And toil there, if you see the original word, it's, got, it's like kind of heavier than just toil. It's got a lot of sweat and exhaustion and physical cost and emotional cost and, and um, he agonizes and maybe relational cost. And so he's like, as I've changed the trajectory of my life, as God changed my life trajectory, I was kind of a Pharisee of Pharisees. Interestingly, Paul had used the vehicle of religion and religious effort and religious duty and legalistic duty and moralistic duty uh, to be a God for him. So his, his idolatry was actually a religious system. And he said, God interrupted his life, knocked him off a donkey, changed his name, and then set him on this course to teach and proclaim Christ and plant churches and build into men and women and share the gospel. And he's like, man, it's been a toil. <clears throat> but, and you see suffering at the beginning of this, toil at the end of this, and so uh, even as he's lived out, poured out his life for Christ, um, that doesn't mean there's not suffering, there's not toil. Like, we live in a broken world. We're broken men and broken women in a broken world. Our hearts were desi designed, Ecclesiastes tells us, for Genesis 1 and 2, which is perfection and beauty and order with God perfectly creating a paradise. There's perfect relationship between man and God. Man and woman, imagine that. Like man and the animals, like there's just harmony and beauty and order until sin enters. And our hearts are designed for that. And they're designed for a Revelation 21, 22 world where Jesus has come to reign and make all things new. And lions are laying down with lambs and there's peace and there's, there's glory. There's no more sin, no more flesh, no more devil. And yet here we are kind of contending in the midst of those things. And there is toil. And there is suffering. And yet, Paul says, I've struggled with all his energy. I'm good, at, I'm good at struggling with my energy. Paul says, I struggle with his energy, that somehow in the midst of this gospel pursuit, that Christ would strengthen him, that, that, that Christ wouldn't keep him from trials, right? James 1 says, consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, like not if. Trials are part of the core curriculum. They're not an elective, like... Um, Paul's got tons of trials. This brother's been shipwrecked. This brother's been snake bitten. He's been thrown, rocks have been thrown at him. He's been kicked out of cities. He's been imprisoned, falsely accused. Um, you could argue in one way that radically pouring his life out for Jesus has led to a very hard life. But you can also see that he says, man, Christ strengthened me in the midst of that, that um, Christ was powerfully at work within me, that yeah, there were trials. So Paul wouldn't preach well on cable tel television. Uh, Paul isn't living his best life now. Um, there are toils and trials, <clears throat> um, yet Jesus sustained him. And it says he powerfully worked within me. And basically, Paul was given by Christ the, sh the feet to walk the path God called him to walk. And so uh, whatever that trial, whatever that struggle, whatever it is in front of you, and I don't know, I don't know you, but I know you. You're either coming out of a trial, you're either in a trial, you're either getting ready to go in a trial, right? Like that's what I know about you. And what we know for those that are in Christ is that God will give us the feet to walk the path he calls us to walk, that Christ will sustain us. That's why way back in Exodus when Moses asked God who he was, God says, I am. Like, I am presently whatever you need. 
for whatever it is, the situation that's in front of you. And that's why Jesus would pray uh, or let us know and remind us that he's always with us. Like he doesn't promise us the plans. He doesn't promise us the solutions. But what what he does promise is his presence, that he is with us to strengthen us with whatever's in front of us if you're in him. Now, I'll be honest with you, as I look at this (laughs) and I go, boy, just first reading and I go, what rejoices their suffering, and man, there is um, uh, affliction and a life of servanthood, like losing my own life to serve others and steward what it is God called me to do, uh, all the way down to this toil. I just like, I'm not sure um, I would want this life if I was dead honest. <laughs> I, I'm not sure Paul would be ultimately happy or fulfilled in this life. But what if, what if Paul? was living life on a level? What if Paul like, lived life fully alive? Like, what if Paul actually found life in this life? Like, it's the great paradox of life. Jesus said it this way, if you're going uh, to go try to find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. I believe what we have here is the lost life, which is a found life. I believe what we have here is a different way of living. I believe what we have here is a narrow path as opposed to the broad path. It's an unconventional life as opposed to the conventional life. And I think Paul found in this life of being poured out, losing his agenda, dying to himself, making much of Jesus, uh, <clears throat> toiling and laboring for the cause of Christ that Paul actually found life, that he found the hope, the peace, the purpose, the validation, the identity that he desperately longed for. See, that's what this life will do to us. It'll trick us into thinking that there's salvation found in this life. That's Ecclesiastes. That's Solomon's journey. It's Solomon at the, on the throne of his life saying, I'm going to go look to find life. He looked for parties. He looked at it for women. He looked at it in leisure. He looked at it in accumulation. He looked at it in wealth. He looked at it in um, uh, building parks for himself. I mean, he, the beauty of Ecclesiastes, the beauty of Solomon's life is whatever dream and desire you and I tend to have to think that if we just had that, we'd be happy. Solomon says, I'll meet you there. I'll crank it times 10. Been there, done that at 10 times the level you'd ever think of it. And I'll tell you, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That I found a vain life. That See, most of us believe the life. We just had more of what we've already got. We'd be happier. That if we, just, if we look horizontally for life, we're not going to find life. If we quit looking horizontally for life or people's approval, if we quit building a life that makes much of us, building a life that shows others our own awesomeness, building a life that's impressive to other people, God loves you enough and loves me enough and promises that he will uh, uh, create in us a dissatisfaction with that life. Like we cannot find joy. We'll find the same vanity that Solomon found. But... If we're willing to, it's the great paradox of life, i got to die to live. If we're willing to die to that and live to make much of Jesus, to make Jesus awesome, to make Jesus the hero of our own life, to make people impressed with Jesus, regardless of how they feel about us, that in that we find life. See, that's Paul's world. And so that, that's, that's our struggle with idolatry. That's our struggle with repentance. Anytime you and I are looking to find life in horizontally, that we take a good thing, anything we take a, a good thing and make it the greatest thing, it now becomes a sinful thing. So we can take a good thing, our spouse, a good thing, our kids, a good thing, our job, a good thing, the family of origin God blessed us with, a good thing, a couple of degrees. But if it becomes the greatest thing, it, it's now a sinful thing. Because we're all worshipers. The world's not full of non-worshipers and worshipers. The world is full of worshipers. The only thing that distinguishes us is what, what it is we worship. 
And as Christ followers, as Christians, that's got to be Jesus. That's why we're constantly repenting and going, man, I'm tempted to make success an idol. I'm tempted to make comfort an idol. I'm tempted to make my marriage an idol. I'm tempted to make your impressions of me an idol. I can be a people pleaser. I can look for comfort, control. I want to make control an idol. That's why I'm an anxious mess. And so uh, when, when the, which we, do we control anything? Like, I can't make my heart beat one more time. I can't make anything. I can't make my kids behave. I can't make my relationships work. I can't make my marriage work. Like, I don't control anything. That's, that's truth, but Jesus holds all things. And so if I worship control, I'm going to be an anxious stress ball. If I worship Jesus, then I can trust him with all of life. And so I struggle to repent, and that's what repentance is. It's putting these idols away Letting Jesus get recentered as the center of our life, which defines the rest of our life. And that's what Paul had to go through. Paul had an interesting idol. Paul's idol, you can read about it in Philippians 3, was religion. Like it was, uh, and that's true of the South, a lot of places, and true of a lot of us. We grew up in a lot of places where religious performance and doing things that nobody else would do and not doing things that everybody else was doing became an idol. And so what's actually keeping us from Christ is our religious good behavior. And we see ourselves as good. And we see ourselves as not great, but good and better than most. And our struggle then is self-righteousness. Because the truth is, Jesus isn't our Savior. We're our Savior. And we've allowed our own Christian duty and our own Christian legalism and our own Christian moralism to become our self-salvation strategy. So, we, so Jesus, we, the reason we struggle to worship, the reason we struggle to be passionate about Christ, the reason the cross is so small in our life and not so big in our life, is because the truth is, Jesus isn't really a Savior for us. He's just a helper. Like we're pretty good people living pretty good lives. We're functional, stay with me on this, we're functional prosperity theologians because our life theme is because I've been behaving and doing the things nobody else will do and doing, um, not doing the things everybody else is doing, then Jesus and God owe me things. And when life throws me a curveball, I, I, now I'm angry because I deserve good things to happen to me because I'm a good person. Now, that's the same camp in your Bible as the Pharisees. Those are the people that murdered Jesus, so there needs to be vast concern if that's where you're coming from. But that would have been my story, that I would have stood on that. What was keeping me from the gospel, keeping me from the cross, was my religiosity, my self-righteousness. And so part of my repentance then and now is to repent of my own self-salvation strategies and to trust in Jesus. And as the gospel's gotten bigger and wider in my heart, I've gone from struggling to worship Jesus to worshiping more now passionately and appreciate the cross gets bigger in my heart and I, I truly do become less and and like I, I can start putting away pretending and performing and I can trust in the gospel just as Paul called us to here and so Paul's idol was a lot like my idol we all have multiple idols anything that competes for salvation anything that's a functional savior anything that we put our faith hope and trust in other than Jesus becomes an idol in our life and so godly men and women are making more and more of Jesus thus it's exposing more and more of those self-salvation strategies those functional saviors that we have to through repentance properly properly realign in our heart that there becomes gospel distance from my spouse, gospel distance from my identity, gospel distance for, from my church, from pastoring. There's a gospel distance from parenting. There's a gospel distance as I'm a repenting man from money and acquisitions. And again, it's not that I don't have them, it's I don't worship them.
And, and, and if, um, if I start to worship him, I need to become a man of repentance so the gospel can get bigger and I can repent of that. And so Paul, that's Paul's life. And that's uh, what he's begging for, that Christ would be more fully known, that the riches of Christ would become explosive in our hearts. And so it begs our, our question, you know, as we round third and go to home, close out here, you know, do you see yourself as a diakonos? Do I see myself as a servant? Am I a servant in my marriage, servant in my neighborhood, servant with the parents of the kids my kids go to school with and the apartment I live in, apartment complex, the places at work, am I a servant? Paul says that became a gospel identity for him. And then he also says another gospel identity in this new life found in Christ is that of a steward. So what, what is it that you have to steward? What can you steward? What are the gifts and talents and abilities that God's given you that need to be stewarded for the glory of God and the fame of Jesus and the good of all people? For some of you, that's extra wealth. For some of you, that's a home or a second home. For some of you, that's time. For some of you, that's a passion, a unique passion for a certain segment of people, college students, singles, uh, married students, uh, or mar- newly married people, new parents. Maybe it's junior high students. Maybe it's uh, people in Celebrate Recovery. Maybe it's uh, um, uh, unwed moms. Maybe it's new divorcees and stepping into those places. You've got a burden for that and a heart for that. Like, What would it look like for you to steward that? for the good of all people and the fame of Jesus. And so seeing yourself as a servant, seeing yourself as a steward or gospel identities that Paul gives us through this text. And then finally, making sure that it's him we proclaim, that it's Jesus we, that we make much of, that our life, our heart is dominated by the person and the work of Jesus. Like what are those, find those, I'll say it this way, find those things that inflame your heart for Christ. And do those things a lot. Find those things that dampen and deaden your affections for Christ and quit doing them. Like find those things that make Jesus come fully alive in your heart that your affections are stirred toward him. Father, would you move in such a way in our hearts through this text and the power of your Holy Spirit that, God, that you would uh, burn these lessons in our heart. I pray for anyone in here who does not know Christ, uh, is not putting their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, that maybe today would be their day of salvation, that you would open their eyes, open their ears, that they would see the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ, and that, God, you might flood their heart for the first time. I pray for others, Lord, who may have come to know you, but are just losing the war when it comes to idolatry and things defining them other than Jesus and uh, our pressed down by the pursuit of comfort and significance and security. And uh, God, I just pray today, maybe for them today could be a day of repentance, that they can uh, rightfully align their heart with Christ at the center uh, and not themselves. And then for those in here, Lord, who are laboring well in this direction, who are men and women of repentance, who uh, are uh, trusting the Lord, trusting God, pressing into God, pouring out their life like a drink offering, much like Paul, want to give all that they've got to the name, fame, glory of Jesus. Would you strengthen them? Would you give them endurance? Would you empower them? For those of us in here in trials, in this last couple of sentences, would you, in our toil, would you give us the feet to walk the path you've called us to walk as we lean into you and trust that we've got your very presence? We thank you, Jesus. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.